All right, we are in Isaiah 2 through 5 this morning. Isaiah chapter 2, getting from here to there. We know living in Northern Virginia, getting from one place to another is hmm, challenging at times. We have to think about traffic and when we're going to leave and how to get there. And uh, getting from here to there is not always easy. That's all throughout life. The challenge of getting from one point to another, of having a goal and having obstacles in the way of that. Teenagers thinking about graduation and career and driver's license and just all of the different things along the way, different goals, and then there's obstacles and challenges along the way. As an adult, I'm maybe thinking ahead and maybe thinking about retirement, but I know that there's work and there's bills and mortgage and all that other stuff and challenges along the way. As a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are moving from point A to point B. And what we know what that is as believers, it is maturing to be like Christ. I am seeking to grow in the image of Christ and become more like him. And yet there are, there are challenges along the way. My ambition, though, is to become more holy, more loving, more gracious, more patient, more kind, all of those things that that set before us what it looks like to be more like Christ, more discerning in truth and error. And there is no biblical ground for contented inaction that says, I can, I can just stay here, or this is who I am, or this is what I like to be, and so this is, this is the way it's going to stay. We are called to continue to grow, and, and, and God sets that pattern before us because he instructs us to grow. He gives us his word by which he speaks his truth to us and shows us what it is to live like Christ. He, he puts his spirit within his people to convict us, to exhort us, to change us. And he puts us in community with other believers to help us in that work of transformation. So we're, we're moving from point A to point B. We're, we're striving to put off old sinful patterns and put on new ways of righteousness, to walk in Christ-likeness. In 1 Corinthians 3, God indicts some of the believers there for immaturity because they are, they're, they're dividing amongst themselves. And he says, this, that, that you're not growing. You're acting like, like infants. You're acting like those who are still feeding on milk. And he challenges them that they're responding to fleshly instincts instead of God's truth. As believers in Jesus Christ, we, we still face temptation. We still are in a world of sin. But the, the, the overall trajectory of our lives is one of should be growth in the image of Christ, moving from where we were to looking back at where we were when he saved us and seeing him work in us and bring us more into that image. If you're not already there, turn to Isaiah chapter 2. I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to go through four chapters this morning. We looked at chapter 1 last week. If you weren't here, if I could encourage you to, to read, to, to go online and listen to that, that sermon, to, uh, you can watch it or listen to it, I guess. Um, it, it just will help set the stage for the book of Isaiah. As I said to you then, Isaiah 1 through 5 is the introduction to the book, but chapter 1, sort of the, the prologue, if you will, that kind of sets the stage, and then 2 through 5 expand on that. God is building his case against the people of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, and he is indicting them for their sin, and he is speaking about a coming judgment that he will bring against their sin. But as I said to you last week, God was also seeking to show them that that's not the end of the story. This is not all about just judgment and wrath that punishes sin. That's right and it's just, but that's not the end of the story. God's 
call is for repentance and restoration, for change and for growth that would bring about a people who would, who would worship him and honor him, and there would be a great work done in them because of his work. And what we're going to see this morning is kind of that, that pathway that he talks about from here to there. So here's, here's the outline. Maybe you have the notes already that, that we handed out the door. But the first one is the promise of a future for a people who will fulfill God's calling. The idea that there is, there is something more and God will be at work in you and he will draw the nations to me through you. But that promise is contrasted with the pride and the sin of the present day people of Judah. And so we keep moving back and forth in the book of Isaiah between this present state of evil and rebellion and this call for what they, they can be, what God wants them to be. And the pathway to that, the third point, is this purification that is necessary, this refining that is needed to move from the present to the destiny that God has indeed promised them. So I'm not going to read all of chapters 2 through 5. If, you, if there was something in one of those chapters that when I get done, you say, you didn't touch on this, and I had a question about this, talk to me or shoot me a note or whatever, and, and, and I'll do my best to offer you something. As I said to you last week, there's a sort of cyclical Hebraic poetry sort of nature to these things. And so to, to walk from 2 to 5, we could. It, it just be honest, would just take longer. And so we're going to kind of pick out some points and you'll see that cycle at different points as opposed to walking through it over and over. So I'm going to start though in chapter two. I do want to read the first five verses of chapter two because they really help set the stage for this. Isaiah two, one through five, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verse one of chapter two should sound similar to verse one of chapter one. And, and what that does is it says again, chapter one, kind of like a prologue, chapter two now unfolding this sort of introduction. Amos, uh, Isaiah now beginning sort of the, the vision that he is setting before them that God has given, and he is now expositing, if you will, that introduction. These verses that we just read in chapter two should be stunning in light of everything we know about the current day situation in Jerusalem and in Judah. We looked at it last week in chapter one. This is a time of prosperity, of riches, of contentment, of um, spiritual inactivity or, or hypocrisy, if you will. Evil is running rampant. There is unfaithfulness and oppression and injustice to the point that, as we saw last week in chapter one, God indicts them when he says, you come and you bring these sacrifices and your hands are covered with blood. And it's not just the blood of the offering, it's the blood of your sin. 
It is the evil that you perpetrate against others. And then you come to this in chapter 2, and there is this glorious picture of the nation streaming to what, as the picture describes here, as the mountain, as, as Jerusalem, as they're coming to this place, and they are coming to hear the instruction of the Lord. They are coming for Torah, the, the Lord, or the, the law, I should say, or the instruction, and they, they are hearing it and then going forth from there. They are coming to worship the God of Israel. And then, as we saw in verse 4, the idea is that all hostility and warfare between nations are quenched. There is peace. People are walking in the ways of the Lord. And God said, again in verse 2, this shall come to pass in the last days. God is promising this future when indeed out of his people there is a, a spread of his word. There is a, a drawing to the truth of who God is and there is worship in response. Now, I'm not going to take the time this morning, but I would encourage you, Isaiah chapter 4 is another good chapter to read. It, it, it speaks also to this promise. It's the shortest chapter in Isaiah. It's also well, an unfortunate sort of chapter break. Verse 1 probably fits much better if you start it and you go, this seems odd, the break between 1 and 2. It, it really fits with chapter 3. But verses 2 through 6 of Isaiah chapter 4 launch into a discussion of this one who is the branch out of the chaotic, troubled landscape of Judah grows this branch that we'll see again in chapter 11 that, that appears to be a fruit-bearing branch. The, 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 there is this glory that comes from this branch, and it would seem to be pointing toward the Messiah who is coming. Let me just, as an aside for just a moment, one of the questions when we read these sorts of things, the promise, particularly in chapter 2, verse 4, of peace beating swords into plowshares and nations not going to war in chapter 4, just the, the picture that's given there. One of the timing that questions that comes up is one of timing. And I said to you last week, the challenge for us in going through Isaiah is both the poetic style, but also the prophecy and the question of when is this to be fulfilled? What, what's the timing in all of this? Christian church has generally moved around two particular views of those end times. There, there, there are more. I'm, I'll just focus on two for now. One says that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise, this discussion that we've read in chapter 2, is a literal future king ruled by the Messiah that is connected to the, the Jewish people and to Jerusalem, largely known as the premillennial view, the idea that there is a thousand-year reign. Uh, the premillennial view would say literal kingdom with ties to the Jewish people and to Jerusalem. Uh, the others would say that these promises are being fulfilled throughout this church age, that what come at the at the coming of Jesus Christ inaugurates this period, and, and we can certainly see similarities to Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the, the nations to Jerusalem and receiving the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then going out from there. there. There's overlap between these views. All of them see that it is the coming of Christ as the Messiah that is the turning point, ultimately. It is the coming of Christ that allows for the fulfillment of all of this. None of this happens apart from the Son of God coming in flesh and living a perfect life and giving himself to the cross and then rising from the dead. And so I'll say this just in terms of the timing issue. I do want to, a few weeks from now in mid-March, we'll take a Sunday and we'll just talk about some of these 
millennial views. And if you're saying, well, I'm not a theologian or a scholar and I'm not interested, I'll do my best. I promise to make it worth your time when that Sunday's coming. And for those of you who do get into this kind of stuff, hopefully at the end you won't say, oh, he's all wrong on this kind of stuff or whatever. Um, but the other, we'll, we'll do that in mid-March, but that, and that's because leading into chapter 11 and really where some of these prophecies looking forward really start to come into play. The other point here is differences aside in these views, again, it is, the focal point is Jesus. It is the God-man who came and perfectly fulfilled God's law, who did what, what no one is able to do and died on the cross and rose again that ultimately brings about the reason why anyone can walk in his ways, just as it says here in chapter two, that they will walk in his ways. And so our, our questions and differences on these things are charitable discussions between brothers and sisters in Christ who ultimately know that those are timing detail questions. Our, our heartbeat should revolve around the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming that saving message. This hope, this promise, this anticipation coming as it does in the book of Isaiah, comes at a bleak time. But it, it says, there is more. This is not the final word. And we get the need for that. We can look around in our culture, in our world today, and, and see it just seeming to unravel before us and see evil prevailing. And as followers of the Lord, we too need to be reminded, much as Isaiah and the remnant of followers needed to hear that God is not done with you, we need to hear that God is continuing to work in this, that there is hope in this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, it says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is where Paul is defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ of course, the truth is we do have hope in this life. Christ is building his church. We see that happening. His spirit is within his people, and he is, he is shaping us and changing us, and, and, and we see this ongoing sufficiency of his grace and trial. So we do have hope in this life, but it's not only for this life. And that's the point of 1 Corinthians 15, 9, is we have a promise of an eternity with our Savior. We have so much more even beyond this. Our hope, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, your hope and knowledge is based on the fact that one day he will bring you safely home to heaven to be in his presence and to enjoy his kingdom. So that's the promise that's set before them. There, there will be fruitfulness, there will be ministry, there will be God accomplishing things that in the present seem impossible. And that's where the second point is, is this current present state, the pride and sin that the people are wallowing in. As Isaiah is prophesying, Judah is a cesspool of evil and of people who really aren't listening or who don't want to hear what Isaiah has to say. Um, last week, we read verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah chapter 2. I won't reread them, but I'll encourage you if you didn't get a chance. Isaiah 2, 6 through 8 essentially says, you are acting like your neighbors, like the, the nations that have no interest in God, like the pagans around you, and you're worshiping in, in a false way, and you're relying on your wealth, and you're trusting in your chariots, and your gold, and your silver. And the attitude in Judah at that point is, sure, there's God, we're God's people. We were chosen by God, right? We're, we're God's people, but listen, we're really good. We've got a lot of stuff right now. We got a really big army and, and we'll do what he tells us to do when we go to the temple and do the rituals, but, but we're safe. We've got everything we need 
And frankly, it's kind of hard to see where we really need something specific from God. Take a look in chapter 3 a minute. God is declaring his judgment on Judah. And I want you to look in particular at verse 8, 8 and 9 of Isaiah chapter 3. And this is all under this pride and sin they're wallowing in. Isaiah 3 verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. What Isaiah had just been talking about was, if you look around Judah, there are no good, qualified leaders. And he's now explaining, you know why they're all corrupt and they're all inept? It is because they defy God. They actually stand and act in defiance of him. They're not just missing the mark and falling short. The, the, the picture that he gives here, it, let's think of it in this terms. It's like the, the child who is sitting there poised to take their plate of food and dump it on the floor and you're across the room and you see that moment happening and you say, no, don't do that. And the child maintains eye contact with you and dumps the food on the floor. At that, ever had that experience? just flat out in your face. And that's what verse nine means when it says, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They are unashamedly, brazenly saying, we don't want to do it your way. I know your law and what you say about holiness and morality and, and money and managing it and being kind and, and contributing to the needs of others and not stealing and not bribing. I don't want to do it your way. And I'm going to do it this way. And they are acting, he says, like the people of Sodom who sinned openly before the Lord. There is sin, and then there is unrepentant, in-your-face, you've-been-warned kind of sin. Just the carrying on and saying, just going to do this. And listen, we, it, we as believers still know that, that impulse. We still know that sense of this feels good. This relationship is not one I... I want to let go of. This is not something that I, I want to change or I think I can change. And, and you may hide that from the Sunday morning crowd, but you are not hiding it from God. Every time you repeat it, it, it is just, it's, it's like this. It's just in your face. And it's this kind of defiance that we need to repent of. Because there comes a point when that hardened, arrogant sin becomes this unrepentant evil that, that God is confronting here in Judah. Look to chapter 5 for just a moment. I mentioned to you chapter 4 is kind of in that promise section and looks ahead, but chapter 5, the cycle turns back again. Let me just read the first four verses of Isaiah 5. And, and Isaiah is using sort of an agricultural illustration here, would have related well to his audience. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I don't understand farming, so I'll tell you what others say about verse 2 and farming, particularly in Judah. The, the terrain is known for being exceedingly rocky, and so when the process is described in verse 2 of digging it, clearing it of stones, planting it, building the watchtower, setting up the wine vat, we tend to think of this in months sometimes. This is without machinery. This is without heavy equipment. This is long, tedious, arduous getting the rocks out by hand, bringing the rocks out of the field. So many rocks that you're building walls with those rocks and you're building a watchtower with those rocks because you've got rocks everywhere. So there's a long process of just preparing the field and then tilling it and then planting it and then watering it and then waiting. So the whole thing is close to three years by the time you go from the beginning to the point where you're starting to see grapes and they do all of this, and it turns out the grapes are awful. When verses 2 and 4 say wild, you could substitute the word worthless there. That's really what it means. These are grapes that are not good for anything. They are not going to the wine vat. Nobody's making anything with them. And if you can imagine Isaiah telling this story in Jerusalem to his listeners, and he's describing a process to which they would have understood oh, all of that work. This, this, this farmer cleared the rocks and built the walls and tilled it and did all that. And, and essentially what he says in verse three, so inhabitants of Judah, uh, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, what he's saying is, now what? What do I do with this vineyard that has produced worthless grapes? Well, they know the answer. Nothing. It's done. You, you, can't, you can't salvage it. Isaiah, that, that vineyard is now useless. And in verse 7, Isaiah does what Nathan did to David. Remember when Nathan confronts David in his sin and he uses the example of the little lamb that the rich man steals to sacrifice and, and says to David, you are that man, David? Well, that's what Isaiah does in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He's saying, that's you. This, this vineyard, this is who, who this nation is now. God, in his, in his mercy, cleared the land of enemies. He brought us in. He planted us in this land flowing with milk and honey, and he blessed us, and he nurtured us, and he watered us, and he, he gave us all of these good things. And what have we given back to him but worthless fruit? That, that's his return on, on his labor. We have proven to be worthless to him. So th that's the picture. We're here at the present in Judah, in this chaos, in this defiance, in this sin, in this state of not producing any fruit of righteousness, and yet we can see what God has promised, and it seems utterly impossible to get from here to the point where the nations are streaming to Zion to hear the word of the Lord. So how does that happen? And that's our third point, purification. God must work in a refining, disciplining, correcting way as only God can do. And he will purify, and when it is done, there will be a remnant that will be his people that will carry out his work. If you look back again at chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 12. Isaiah 2, verse 12, as he's now explaining how this 
how this is going to happen. Isaiah 2, verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is... This is Hebrew poetry. This is picturesque language. As you're reading through those first few verses, you should be getting that sense of looking up because he's saying high mountains, high walls, high tower, everything is elevated. And what he's talking about is this is your view of yourselves. You see yourselves as being exalted and lifted up and as the greatest thing going, high trees, high mountains. There will be a day of reckoning. The Lord has a day, will host a day, when all of that perceived majesty and height will be brought down in one fell swoop. He says, all of it will be made low because there is only one who is truly high and lifted up. There is only one who is to be exalted, and that is God, and he will not give his glory to another. And so God will judge and will bring you down. Judah was a glorious vineyard. Judah was all that God had made, and yet they are at this place of saying, look at us. Just like the idea of building the Tower of Babel. Look at us. Look at what we have done with the work of our hands. Man cannot persist in self-exaltation. We see it all the time. It surrounds us in our culture, and man cannot persist in it. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, verse 22, God says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? That, that last verse is saying, you, have, you are putting all your hope in somebody that sucks in oxygen just like you do, and I am God. The only reason they have breath in their nostrils is because I am kind enough to put it there. I have done it, and you are regarding man above me. And his, his instruction to them, his command is stop treating man as being greater than God. Go back to chapter 5 again. So the, the follow-up to the vineyard. We've seen God spell out the picture of how they have borne worthless fruit. Prideful defiance. So now look at verse 20 of Isaiah 5. Series of woes that begins back in verse 18. Isaiah 5:20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and hold, let me pause there. I want to come back to that verse. Just, let, let's just think about the woes for just a second. Woe is kind of English for lament, for pain, for suffering. Alas might be another way of saying it. It is, it is a, I, as I see this, I, I feel it, I grieve internally. 
This prophecy is going to point to death, the judgment of death. And so there is, there is woe here. This is even more tragic because if Judah had simply committed to the instruction of the Lord, they would understand good from evil. They would understand bitter from sweet and light from dark, and they wouldn't confuse the two. But he says, as it is, you have, you have blurred every line so that now you are looking at what is evil and you are embracing it as good. You have perverted God's law to the point that everything around you that is evil, you now enjoy. So much so, he says, that, that, that you, are, you are so twisted that you are applauding men who are skilled at mixing drinks, but you are against those and, and angry at those who are dispensing justice to the poor. That's, that's how your, your morals, your thoughts have gotten completely twisted. Commentator John Oswalt writes, they give prizes not to those who defend the helpless, but to those who can drink the most liquor before going under the table. It's a blunt way of describing what, what it is they're describing here. And, and, and listen, we can, again, we can look at our world today and say everything that we see right here, this calling of that which is good, evil, and evil, good, and darkness, light, we, we see that. Things haven't really changed in 2,700 years. So then come the consequences. Verse 24, therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness. Their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all, his, all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still." He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. This is one of the first, most explicit points in Isaiah where Isaiah is now explaining what God's judgment will look like on the nation of Judah and the fact that that judgment will incorporate enemy nations, that God will signal for foreign nations to come in and to strike Judah and to drag the people into exile. God will give that signal to capture Jerusalem and to, to take the people and to drag them out of there. That's what he's beginning to foreshadow here when he speaks about that signal and for them to come quickly because the rest of chapter five shows these enemies roaring like lions who come in to, to devour their prey. They come in to devour and to grab and to take and to take from out of Jerusalem. Remember, by the time Isaiah is speaking these things, the Assyrian Empire has already been in its great expansion, and it is already on the doorstep of the northern kingdom of Israel. We don't know the exact timing of when these chapters 2 through 5 are being spoken, but somewhere around this time, the Assyrian Empire is already beginning its incursion into Galilee and is already beginning to touch on the people of the northern kingdom. So the threat is real. When God says that at my signal, those enemies will come in and they will carry out my judgment. It's very true. The effect of that, the effect of the judgment of God, when we speak about a God who judges, the effect of that is the same then as it was today. When we read these kind of things today, there are people today who respond to that and go, I, I don't get this. I don't buy into a God who has got wrath, who judges sin. I don't, I don't like this whole hell thing. I, 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 I just... That just pushes me further away from the God that you talk about. And, and this, certainly the same thing happens at that point in time when Isaiah is speaking to Jewish people and saying, God will 
bring foreign armies into Jerusalem to dispose you, there are people who are like, I don't buy that at all, and, and, and who not only disbelieve it, but now reject it. It's only going to make them angrier when that judgment is executed. But here's, here's the key, and, and, and for us, for Isaiah and the remnant of those faithful to God, they will be part of that as well. They will walk through that experience when God brings down his judgment. And for that remnant, that exile is part of the refining, correcting, purifying work of God amongst his people. That, that suffering that will also be endured by Isaiah and other faithful brethren will be part of God purifying the remnant. We're going to see that next week in chapter 6, the specific purifying of, of Isaiah uh, that, that's in that vision in chapter 6. But, but here's the thing for you and I. We understand, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then, then you understand that one of the key elements to what man is, is we, we are sinners by nature. We are conceived in sin. And so when we read, they call evil good, and, and, and they lie, and they twist the truth. Listen, we all came into life with the propensity to call evil good and good evil. We've all twisted truth into lies because it served our benefit. We've all said or done things just because it made me feel good in the moment, even if it was at the expense of someone else or it was dishonoring to God. We've all loved darkness rather than light. We still struggle with the, the desire to hide in the dark with our sin. And, 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 and still battle with the culture around us. But the saving work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have, begins by exposing our sin. The, the, the key to really grasping the gospel is not only seeing what Jesus Christ has done in the atonement and dying on the cross and rising, but it is in seeing myself as God describes me, as one who is lost and dead in sin and in need of atonement. I need Christ to satisfy God's wrath for my sin. And so the gospel calls us to humbly admit that we were dead in sin, that we were enemies of a holy God, and only the suffering of Jesus on the cross could rescue us from that place. So we come to Christ by faith, trusting that only Christ is able to do what we are entirely unable to do, and that is to present ourselves before God as right. We cannot go to our creator and judge and say, I think I'm a really good person. Got a lot of prosperity to back it up. I must be good. It doesn't work. We can only come to him on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, on the sinless one who gave himself, because in his giving himself, when he saves us, it is his right standing that we receive. His righteousness is given to us by grace, and that's how we are saved. And so now, as those who have been redeemed and set apart, the reality is we know that salvation did not give us a sudden total body-soul infusion of holiness. We didn't just get saved and suddenly all the desires were gone and the flesh was replaced and, and it, was, it was all good and, and there were no more sinful tendencies. He gives us his spirit and the capacity to resist sin, but we are still learning and growing. We are still living right in the midst of a culture that loves to call evil good and good evil and that tries to compel us and says, come on, Stop calling that evil. It's not so bad. 
we still have desires in our heart to be, want, want to be accepted and, 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 and have people like us and, and fit in. We still have sinful desires. And one of the chief means that God uses to grow us is purifying, refining, correcting, disciplining. It's all the stuff that we're not eager for, that we rarely go to prayer for and say, God, please refine me and purify me. And yet it is the kind work that God is promising here that he continues to do in us. And so the painful circumstances, the the things that might provoke anger in some and drive them away are the things that are supposed to call us, if we belong to Christ, to draw near to him. And to understand that he is using these things for our good to shape us more into the image of Christ, to draw us more toward him. That's why James 1 says, the testing of your faith is meant by God to provoke, to make perseverance, steadfastness is the word. The testing of your faith is designed to make you more stable because in that testing, if we run to him and to his word, we find stability so that we're no longer tossed back and forth. We know that he is good and he is right in this and that he does not leave us or forsake us. Romans 8 doesn't say that Christ delivers us from every experience of distress or tribulation or persecution. What it says is that as we go through these things, we are not separated from the love of Christ in those circumstances. So as we go through suffering, persecution, hardship, What we are reminded of is Christ loves me. Even if others hate me, Christ loves me. And I am held by that. Listen, the reality of the world Isaiah is in, it's no different than the reality of the world that we are in. And we should fully anticipate an increasing level of persecution, of hatred for what we believe and what we hold to. And that's all the more reason to cling to a savior who is refining us through these things to help us to know how much he loves us so that we can still love those that we, we are otherwise tempted to hate, that we can be like Christ even through that. In Hebrews 12, where it says to not grow weary or faint-hearted, it's talking about our struggle against sin and how the Lord graciously disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. The Lord disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the refining work of God. Brothers and sisters, the the people that Isaiah was talking to would have, if you had given them a survey, are you people of God, of, of, of Yahweh, or are you not? If they had to do the poll, they would have said, sure, we're people of God. And yet we're seeing what's happening amongst the people who are professing to be the people of God. And so the refining work of God will come and it will purify and there will be a remnant that will be standing, that will be trusting in him. One last passage, and and Pastor Stewart read it during the, the call to worship this morning, and that's Peter at the beginning of 1 Peter saying, here it is, here's the prize. It's an an imperishable, unfading inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven. It is glorious, and it is what you are looking forward to. But then as he reminds his readers, now for a little while you may be grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we 
You need to embrace, as difficult as that may be, God's kindness in testing and refining and purifying and working in his people because it is part of the good work he does to get us from here to there. And as we move forward in Isaiah, we're going to continue to see God's judgment being poured out, and we're going to continue to be reminded that is not the end of the story. God's final word is the deliverance of a people to himself. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, the glory of our perseverance is that we are held by our Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we believe that because you have spoken these things, you will bring them to pass. You say that again and again throughout the prophets. I am God and there is no other. I am God and, and what I ordain will be accomplished. And so, Lord, we come to you as a people who humbly bow before you, knowing that were it not for your grace, were it not for your kindness in rescuing us from our own sin, delivering us from darkness, we would have no hope. But because of your work, because of what you have done, because of what Christ did on the cross, and because of his glorious resurrection from the dead, we anchor our hope behind the veil in heaven, trusting that we will one day be safely brought home. In the meantime, Lord, as we walk from where we are today, even in looking back, we can see your mercy and how you've already begun that transformation. You've already been changing and, and helping and working in us to change habits and to transform us. And we pray that you would continue that. Where we are not acting like Christ, where we are not thinking like Jesus, where we are not desiring like Jesus, where we are not managing our emotions like Jesus, in all of these things, we, we pray for you to do that work of transforming us more and more like Christ. Father, if there's anyone here or watching online this morning who is saying, I, I don't have that hope, I don't know what that looks like to have that hope that is anchored in heaven, I pray that today would be the day when your spirit would cause their heart to fully grasp their need of a Savior. The fact that the Son of God came, lived a perfectly sinless life, followed completely your perfect will, gave himself to die on the cross, and in doing so, took on himself our sin so that it might be punished in him so that we who trust in him might have forgiveness and life and that Jesus has risen and he is coming again and his kingdom will be glorious and majestic. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who does not have that hope, that today would be the day that you would work in their heart in such a way that they would, they would see Jesus as glorious and bow before him and run to him. Lord, we as, as your children long for that day, much as John said at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. We are eager for your kingdom to be established in a clear, visible way throughout all of creation. But until that day, we ask you to sustain us, to refine us, to move us more and more into the image of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.